Welcome to the Trilogy of Terror podcast. Hello, God Blimey here. Bet you're impressed to hear me back so soon. Welcome to another In Between episode. These follow on from a, a main Trilogy of Terror episode and are usually related to things that were covered in that. I've decided I'm going to use these to bring in people I think will be interesting to have a discussion with about the director in question or their work or something else related. So the main episodes will stay the same and I'll probably refer to them as the director episodes and the in-between ones will become Trilogy of Terror interviews or Totty for short. Anyway, the last director I looked at was Steve Miner. If you remember, I mentioned that he was involved in three of the early Friday the 13th films, so I thought it would be fun to have a chat with someone about that series of movies. In particular, the first four, which seemed to fit together quite well as a nice self-contained quadrilogy. So, I invited a special guest to talk about them, one who certainly knows a thing or two about slasher movies. If I mention Chunky Kit Kats, Toya but not Susie, Bob Hoskins and Inga, if you're familiar with the Hysteria Continues podcast, you'd have already worked out who it is. Yep, it's one of the co-hosts, it's Eric Threlfall. Now, our discussion's quite long, so I've split it into two halves. You'll hear us talking about the original film and part two here, and you can hear the second half covering parts three and four next week. I hope you enjoy it, and without further ado, here's me and Eric. So, hello Eric. Hello, how are you, Gore? I'm fine, thank you very much. Uh, thanks so much for coming on here to chat to me. Mm, I've taken a break from my chunky Kit Kats just to be with you tonight. <laughs> I'm very honoured. <laughs> so you're involved in the Hysteria Continue, so in case anyone out there hasn't heard of what that is, what is it? Okay, Hysteria Continues is a spin-off podcast from a website called Hysteria Lives, run by Justin Kurzweil. Uh, we started it in 2011, and it's dedicated solely to slasher movies, although we do sometimes veer off on odd tangents, such as Terminator and Predator. And I blame Joseph for that. <laughs> so there's four of us. There's myself in Dublin, Justin's in Bristol in the UK, and... Joseph and Nathan are in Tennessee in the States, so it's a transatlantic podcast. So we've been going for about, yeah, just over six years now, and uh, it's mainly, well, it is totally devoted to the slasher movie, as we are big fans. And it, it, the interesting thing is that you don't just do that, though. You've already started popping up on DVDs and Blu-rays doing the commentaries as well. Yes, yeah, so that started about maybe three or four years ago. Um, our very first one was a company called Vinegar Syndrome in the US brought out a, uh, well, they were planning to bring out a DVD of a film called Savage Water, and we did a commentary track for that. But due to legal reasons, that um, film was pulled at the last minute. So um, uh, we've done more since. We've just completed last weekend a commentary track for the upcoming Arrow release of The Slayer, which is one of the former video nasties and the big oh, yeah. favourite with all four of us. Uh, so that's coming out in August, I think. Uh, so yeah, we, we've we've started branching out there. No plans for Big Fat Ethel Two or anything like that. <laughs> crazy Fat Ethel Two. Oh, sorry, Crazy Fat <laughs> Ethel Two. <gasps> she's crazy. Well, she's big as well, but she's mainly crazy. Um, no, no. But oh my god, if that if word ever got out that that was going to be released on Blu-ray, Nathan would probably have a fit of excitement. <laughs> it's one of his favourite movies. The rest of us, not really our favourite movie. No. Uh, no, no, no. So, so what is it that got you into horror films in the first place? Then. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, I 
think probably my first exposure to horror was, and this is going to sound kind of odd, but probably Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. <laughs> uh, are you familiar with the? You're familiar with the film, aren't you? I was going to say that sounded like a porno film for a minute. I wonder where you were going with that. But <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a really scary bit in the middle, isn't there, where they go through like a tunnel or something? Yeah, the Wonkatania scene it's called. It's a, they go on a boat and there's all this kind of psychedelic imagery, and it just has it has a, a, a there's a weird. Um, bitter edge to the movie that always grabbed me even though it has a super sweet happy ending yeah, yeah but it has like chickens having their heads chopped off and stuff in it doesn't it from what i remember i don't know if it goes that far I there's one there's one bit where, version. <laughs> where a cent- there's a centipede crawling across someone's face is one of the images that always used to go make me Ugh. um but I, in terms of horror i would say oh i used to watch some tv i remember seeing the um tv spot for phantasm on the television when it would have been about six or seven and that really intrigued me but my first exposure to a slasher movie was halloween 2 it's the same as justin actually i saw it it was broadcast on irish television in the mid 80s and uh yeah it knocked me sideways it scared me to death because i was so easily scared of horror movies as a child Mm. um Mm. Yeah, so I mean, slashers, you know, the genre itself, I mean, that seems to be like a particular interest for you. But what what is it about slashers other than, you know, what what is it about them rather than other horror films that's particularly I, interesting? I think there's a simplicity to them that I just really liked. I, I always equate a, slasher, a good slasher movie to like a good pop song. Uh, there's, there mightn't be any particularly, you know, highbrow substance to it, but... Um, <laughs> you know it, it you can't help but like them and we were talking about the first four friday the 13th here and they are favorites of mine because one they uh, have a very simplistic linear plot and two they're quite repetitious and so the chances are if you like one you're going to like all four so um yeah i i, I can't explain i mean i like all, all other sorts of films as well as you know if you listen to hysteria continues you'll know yeah. i love dirty dancing and footloose and flash dance <laughs> and that type of movie as well speaking of horror yeah <laughs> I love your comparison to uh, to like a pop record or something. Like a pop record with with stabbing and boobs, you know. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can see that. So mm-hmm. with the with the Friday the Thirteenth series, how do you um, like? You know, there's all these uh, other big film series like Halloween, Nightmare on Elm Street, and all that lot. Where do you put Friday the Thirteenth in your mind? You know, mm. are they a favorite or are they second or third? I would think they are a favourite because, well, back in the 80s, Nightmare on Elm Street would have been my favourite series, but I don't know. They haven't aged that well for me. Uh, Halloween, the first two are magnificent. Uh, Part three is great as well, even though it's not a slasher movie. But then the series became very iffy. So I think there's, there's more good Friday the 13th films and there is good Halloween films. So for that reason, I would say Friday the 13th is my favourite series of the slasher um, giants, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so which of the ones, which of the Fridays did you see first? Which was your first one? Yeah, bizarrely, I saw them all out of order because um, we did not get a video recorder in my house until the, until the 1987, I think it was. So Jason Lives Part 6 had just come out on video at that stage. So that was the first one I saw. Um, I don't know why I jumped straight into part six, just because it was I, lo- I loved the cover art, which was the hockey mask with light shining through it and a gravestone saying Jason lives. Mm. Um, so that, yeah, I started with six, then I moved on to four, the final chapter. And that's when I finally decided, OK, I'll watch them in order now. So I went six, <laughs> four, one, two, three from, from there on. Wow. Right. Blimey. And I thought I was bad starting at three. <laughs> but six. Good grief. <laughs> 
Did you ever get? Did you see three in the cinema? Not, I'm not yeah, saying well, that you're old, but <laughs> I am. <laughs> no, I did, but disappointingly, I saw it in the cinema. But uh, when we actually arrived and got to the box office, they had a little notice stuck on it saying "flat version." So, uh, yeah. oh, the whole point of me going to see it was to see the 3D. I wasn't really into horror films that much at the time, so I'd kind <laughs> of gone to see this 3D thing and ended up having to watch it in flat version. But it was good. I loved it, you know. And it was the first one, and uh, and all the rest. Of it. It's just I've never seen it in proper 3D, which is something no. I would always love to do. Neither have I. I Justin saw it at a revival screening in London about 10 years ago and he said it was incredible. He said the, the, the print was battered a bit, but he said the 3D was incredible. I saw parts one to four on a movie marathon in the Prince Charles Cinema in London last May, uh, but part three was shown flat. It was just the 2D version. It was still good, a good experience. I, it was, actually, I'm glad it wasn't in 3D because it, 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 the marathon started at quarter to midnight. And by the time part three rolled around, I really was drifting in and out of consciousness <laughs> because I, I have no stamina when it comes to um, trying to resist sleep. Uh, I would yes. have been much happier if the marathon had started at midday and finished at nine o'clock and I could go home and have a cup of cocoa and watch, you know, Friends. Oh, I'm totally with you with this all night mm. thing. Yeah, I go to um, I go to celluloid screens in Sheffield quite often, and they have overnight um, films overnight and this stuff. And uh, no, no, thank you very much. No, I just can't. I can't stay awake. I'm sorry. Yeah, well, I want to watch the ones in the daytime, so I don't want to be falling asleep mm. through them. I have enough trouble trying to stay awake because mm. it is, you know. But uh, yeah. Oh well. Anyway. Um. Well. We shall start talking about the films now, um, but I would say that um, I'm assuming, like me, you're going to be mentioning spoilers for them. Yes. Now, when it comes to Friday the 13th, it's only really part one has a spoiler. Yeah, and it's pretty hard to avoid that one, really, but yeah. <laughs> Everyone knows Jason's the killer in Friday the 13th, so that's not a spoiler. So. <laughs> According to Scream, yeah, that's right. Completely agree. If you're a horror fan, you will know the films really well. It's like, it's like saying like there's somebody out there that hasn't heard uh, The Changeling by Toya, that classic 1982 <laughs> album. I mean, everyone's heard that album. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I uh, yeah. <laughs> she was quite good in shoestring. I remember that when I was young. There's more to her than shoestring. She was on Celebrity Cash in the Attic as she well. She was, and she was on the Sex Advice program as well, whatever that was yes, called. Yes, yeah, she's very one. versatile. Yes. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so we we'll start. Let's have a, a, a talk about Friday the Thirteenth, the first one, so mm -hmm. the original one, and. Um, Perhaps if we go through it sort of bit by bit with the plot and, and see what comes up from that. So we start off with the kind of sitting around the fire, singing in 1958, and there's um, Barry and Claudette go off to the barn or something like that for a bit of nookie. And while they're up, they get caught by someone, and then there's the kind of a slow-mo death sequence where he's stabbed in the stomach and um, she's... I don't really know what happens to her. She kind of freeze frames and goes white, and we don't really see what happens to her. Well, there is a famous still image of um, Claudette with a machete or a big knife to her neck, but uh, it, it may have been just a behind-the-scenes shot done merely for publicity rather than uh, indicating it was a deleted scene as such. Yeah, I mean, I think it's quite a good opening, but it's just mm. odd that with for a film that's famous for all its gore effects, they don't put something right at the very beginning. Um, it's just odd. I think it's a good punchy start, but, you know... Well, that was all really. But uh, anyway, we move on to the present and uh, we get Annie, who is going to be the cook there. She's wandering around showing her skills at being able to sex dogs. 
Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, she's she is very good. Yeah. Um, she goes into the cafe, gets a strange reaction from the locals when she says she's going to um, the the old camp, and gets a lift there. Do you do you know? Did you catch the name of the guy who gives her the lift? I know he's called something like Enos, but I keep thinking it's Anus. It's, I think it's in the credits. It's spelled A N O S. I think so. It's his name is Anus. No, so, uh, that poor man. Really, it must be like Friday the Thirteenth every day for him with a name like that. <laughs> Oh my word, that poor man! Yeah. yeah, so so he gives her a lift, and well, and she also bumps into Ralph as well, and gets the crazy Ralph, and gets her first uh, "It's got a death curse" quote. But anyway, she ends up going there. But at the same time, we get this other scene where we've got Ned, Marcy, and Jack coming along mm-hmm. to banjo music, which is odd, driving along. Now this scene, yes. it's only me apparently that that <laughs> notices this. This. <laughs> How how can anyone not see this? Now, I when I first saw this, I assumed this scene involved um, Kevin Bacon's character getting a hand job in the front of the car, and I'm not not joking. I honestly thought that's what it was because you've got the this they're sitting in the car. You see them from sort of chest height upwards. Um, um, he's sitting there. Marcy's next to him, kind of looking down at his crutch with her arm pointing in that direction. Um, there's a bit of fidgeting around, and as they're driving along, you hear this kind of oh 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 noises, and then. And it cuts back to them sitting there and he's looking all sort of sweaty and relaxed. Um, how how does nobody else see that? Because, because you've got... <laughs> Don't tell got, me I've fantasised it. You I have, haven't. You've got a filthy mind. I mean, I can see where you're coming from now with the with the Kevin Bacon handjob theory, as I like to call it. Um, <laughs> it's not a theory, it's, it's fact. It's not a fact. <laughs> she is looking in that direction, which does make it look a bit suspicious. But... They're yeah. making the sex noises because they're talking to Ned about how he can't stop thinking about sex. And I think that's why they're just making a joke. Um, if it is okay. if it is a, gen- a genuine scene of Kevin Bacon getting a handjob in front of one of his best friends, then it's just very weird and they probably all deserve to die. Mm. <laughs> well, I did think it was really weird. I'm not saying I thought it was normal at all. It was just very strange. I just assumed that's what it was, you know. <laughs> but, um, you know, that's not the that's not the worst sex thing in it at all, because when they get to the camp, they've got uh, Steve Christie, who I did actually think was somebody's dad at first. He's kind of jumping around in tiny little shorts yeah. and a little red neckerchief and nothing well, else. Well, I like to call the neckerchief a cravat. So he's, he's basically wearing a cravat <laughs> and hot pants. So yes. what does that tell you about him? I don't know, but I found that quite disturbing to watch. Mm. And you see, he's kind of sleezing on poor Alice. I know. Delicately caressing her cheek. On her face, that is. And this is despite her horrible blouse that she's wearing and everything. Poor Alice. And her pudding ball haircut. Yes. And uh, we also get Ned, who I've mentioned in the car before, who is that the annoying joker. Oh, he's so films. funny that way he almost kills Brenda with the arrow. Oh, the, the lulls oh, she must have had afterwards. <laughs> yes, yes. It seems that this seems to be a pattern in, in these early films, as you always get an annoying joker yeah. that does incredibly stupid things mm-hmm. and gets away with it. Yeah, so. Yeah, and he does Humphrey Bogart impressions as well, yeah. which is. You know, a joy. Yeah, but at least at least nobody can die from them, I don't think. <laughs> Whereas his little stunt with the arrow is like, um, health and safety. <laughs> so Annie, the, the, the one we mentioned earlier, she gets a lift in a, a Jeep by somebody, which uh, passes the turning. And she gets unnerved and jumps out of the Jeep, rolls out, very well done, rolls out and then kind of runs off through the woods. And the one thing I noticed about this is, this is where it kind of sets off loads of these um, killer point of view shots mm. 
and I think that that was quite interesting because this sort of starts up now, and that's a bit of a a feature that that carries on through this, which is quite you know quite a good thing. Mm. Well, in, well, in this yeah, in this first one, they're trying to uh, hide the identity of the killer. Um, yes. So hence all the POV shots. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, it just it worked really well. And um, she, she gets chased, she gets a throat cut, which has a really good special effect. I like that special mm-hmm. effect quite a lot. And um, although it is quite strange, she does that classic um, thing where somebody's cutting a throat open and she doesn't put her hands up to stop them at all. You know, she just kind of lets them. Mm, but that happens a lot in Friday the 13th. It does, but it's a, it's a good effect anyway. Going back to Ned and his incredible sense of humour, he's there pretending to drown in the next one. <laughs> Just so he can get a snog. <laughs> I know. I know how how they must have laughed. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I love the way as well, while they're trying to bring him to shore, you get Alice who just kind of tosses a, a safety ring at him just as they're dragging him out of the oh, water. I know, it's so, so funny. She's, yeah. she's so good. If I'm ever drowning, I want her to help. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, the, the scene that follows this one is one that I'm not too keen on. This is the snake mm, scene. Yes. It's a very odd scene because um, the whole atmosphere is weird in it because Alice is all kind of light and jokey and it's all sort of giggly and it's as if it's been done for laughs but at the same time there's a snake and it's a real snake and they chop it in a couple of pieces which is quite brutal really it is and as much as i hate snakes i would have to agree with you it is it is yeah weird yeah yeah i mean this is friday the 13th could be one of my favorite horror films but this is one of the things that kind of knocks it down for me Mm. You know, I just think there wasn't really, <clears throat> there wasn't really a lot of need for that scene anyway. I'm no. not really sure what it adds. It doesn't add anything. At the end of the scene, Bill, uh, he has a strange look, as if as if mm. something sinister, or not sinister, or something deep and meaningful is going on in his mind. But then, it, like, it's never referenced again for the rest of the film. No, it's, it's complete padding, and it's it's you know needless. Yeah, and it yeah, and it's just tonally, it's very odd. Mm. It just it doesn't kind of fit um but meanwhile we have there's a strange scene with a the cop turns up and ned's dancing around uh with a feather headdress yeah he's wearing he's wearing his um his american football top as a nappy <laughs> that's very true <laughs> and um and in the meantime alice is in the kitchen where she finds ralph hiding in the pantry which is which is kind of weird because he's there and he says this place is cursed it's got a death curse and and all this kind of stuff and i think well if you're going to surprise people by coming out of the closet in a film like <laughs> this at least at least do it with a feather bow and a tiara <laughs> you know not coming out saying you're doomed you're all well, doomed steve, yeah steve christie should come out of there with his hot pants and his cravat no oh, yeah. god i think that would turn anyone the other <laughs> way wouldn't it <laughs> So anyway, got Jack and Marcy. They have a scene where they go off into the cabin and uh, for a bit of nookie. Meanwhile, Alice, Bill, and Brenda are in the main cabin playing strip monopoly, mm. with the immortal quote, "Just wait until he lands on my old Kentucky home." Yep. <laughs> I've got no idea what that means, but I just like the quote. <laughs> <laughs> So we've got that going on, and then the sex scene going on where we get like a flash of lightning, a flash of Kevin Bacon's bum, and and then we see Ned is dead up in the top bunk mm. while they're shagging underneath. And how they didn't see him is, is kind of a mystery. Yes, yeah, exactly. You'd think you'd notice. Yeah, and we get uh, Jack's death, Kevin Bacon's character's death, which is actually one of the highlights, I think, of this film. Mm. I quite like the way that effect was done. I don't know that it's all that plausible uh, well no because it, it's well the done arrow, <laughs> the arrow would have to go through um uh, whatever uh, you know a foot thick mattress as well as his neck yes yeah, that's right and it comes central so it would have to go through his spine and, and all the yeah, rest of it and the killer underneath the bed obviously would have no uh 
way of knowing where exactly whereabouts to plunge the, the arrow. <laughs> yeah, so it's all it is incredibly implausible. It is as well. And plus, he's also been lying under there for I don't know how long while they've been shagging on top of mm. him. So, uh, yeah, so it's, it's very well planned by the killer, but uh, but, it, but it looks good. It's a good effect. It does, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think the next the next kill for me is the highlight. Uh, this is Marcy yes. in the toilet block. Yes. Yeah. It's a good scene, actually. I'm, I'd forgotten how good this was until I was rewatching it. I think it, it's done really well. The lighting and everything is really clever in this scene. I think they just use like a single light bulb and they do a lot of stuff with the shadows and things. Mm. And she does a hell of a good Catherine Hepburn impression. <laughs> I was really impressed with that. Lizzie, you'll <laughs> always be plain. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't it's actually I wasn't even sure who she was supposed to be. <laughs> yes. It's Catherine Hepburn in the Rainmaker. Okay, you yeah. see. <laughs> I know. It makes it sound like I know my films. It's not. It's just because I, I looked it up to go and have a look and oh, I watched right. a clip of it and <laughs> it's good. She's very good. Mm. What was it about that death in particular that struck you? Struck you as the wrong words, but <laughs> <laughs> I would like to say something um uh, like really profound about the filmmaking style and all that, but no, I just like the effect of the axe in her face. <laughs> it's that. It's just that straightforward. I'm afraid. <laughs> it's just that. Well, it works. Like, up, up on, th- from the point up until I saw Friday the Thirteenth, any film that had somebody getting an axe in the face would cut away at the moment of impact, or you wouldn't see the aftermath. Whereas mm. this one did finally, and I was like, "Whoa!" So that's what it look, would look like. It is a good one. It's it one of those I'd sort of forgotten how good it mm. was. Well, while this is all going on, in in the main cabin, we've got the strip Monopoly, which is getting lukewarm. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, Brenda goes off to shut her windows. Yeah. Not a, not a euphemism. She goes off. She thinks she's left them open. What in the would shutting her something. windows be a euphemism for? <laughs> I have no idea, but... Uh... <laughs> Yeah, we, we have odd little scenes with Steve Christie talking to what looks like Tootsie, Dustin Hoffman, in the diner. Uh, Tootsie mated with Deirdre Rashid from Carnation Street. <laughs> so um, Brenda gets back, gets into her bed a bit later on after she shut her windows, and she has the most enormous Victorian white nighty I think I've ever seen. Yes, it's very um, Walton's, our little house on the prairie. Considering she was five minutes ago talking about stripping off and you know, all this, and there she is in this... Um, she probably would have stripped down to her bloomers or something, I suppose, if she was doing the... Well, by the, well, by the time she finishes Strip Monopoly, she's in her bra and pants. Well, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, God. But anyway, she hears what sounds like a child calling for help. So she goes off, grabs a torch, and goes to see what it is. And that's when the lights come on and she finds she's at the archery range. Now, this is one of the odd ones because they don't actually show you the, the death. Mm. There's a couple in the first one where they don't actually show you. It's just sort of you see the after effect. And they say, like, yeah. they, they, that this is a recurring thing in the Friday series is there'll be maybe one mm. or two deaths, deaths that they don't actually show. Anyway, so um, Alice and Bill, they go around looking around to see where people are. That's when they find the axe on the pillow. And they decide to break into the camp office to phone. And I quite like this little scene because the camera is looking through the window and then it pans and it sort of goes up to where the, the phone line mm. is and you can see it's been cut. <gasps> and I thought that was a, oh, that, that was a good. That yeah. was very well mm-hmm. done. But, but before that scene, though, I think, yes, Steve Christie has uh, got stranded in the middle of nowhere. So he has to hitch a lift halfway home with, um, with the sheriff. That's but, right. But then yes. he has to walk the last mile or so. Um, Yes. And this is where he encounters somebody 
who he recognizes that we don't see and he gets stabbed um and yes oh yeah better wait till we've done the spoiler alert before i give you the joseph henson theory on <laughs> on that <laughs> i was just i was about to say something and i went oops we haven't revealed who the killer is yet oh so, right yeah. okay so uh, yeah absolutely so he gets killed and um, Bill goes off to fix the generator, which has gone off again. I think the mystery killer has turned it off. So he goes off and uh, Alice discovers him pinned to the back of a door with arrows in his eyes and things. So another death that you don't see until afterwards. Yeah. But this also marks the point where we get into the final girl sequence now. So she's the last one left. She uh, barricades herself in. And Brenda's body gets thrown through the kitchen window with a big jump. And then a car turns up and it looks like Steve's Jeep, but it's not Steve. It is an old friend of the Christie's. Yes. I was going to say, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's Mrs. Voorhees, an old friend of the Christie's. Yeah, she used to be the cook. I was watching this again today and I was thinking, I really like the way she moves around in this. It's quite good. She has a kind of a sort of a jerky move, mm. the way she moves around. It is quite masculine, mm. the way she moves. Yes. And she starts off sounding like she's sort of nice and understanding and then kind of turns and you soon realise she's a complete nut job. But um, it's quite a good performance. Again, I hadn't really noticed it that much in the past but it's actually quite good it is i would agree i mean she's she's suitably barmy and as you said she looks quite masculine the way she's dressed the the short hair uh, but do, did you feel that it was possibly a cheat that mrs Voorhees suddenly appears out of nowhere having never been referenced in any other stage in the film and she's suddenly absolutely absolutely yeah. this was my there's there are two gripes i have with this film and one was the snake scene mm. i mentioned before the other gripe i have is that uh, mrs Voorhees turns up and she's a main character and she turns up in the last 15 20 minutes mm. like you said never been mentioned before yeah which is against the grain like slasher movies of this era uh, were most of them were whodunits apart from maybe halloween mm. and that they'd sow the seeds of who the possible killer could be throughout the movie and then at the end it was revealed whereas friday the 13th didn't even didn't go to those lengths it just no. said we'll just shove another <laughs> main character in as you said in the last 15 minutes and that'll be our killer i know i know god agatha christie would be turning in a grave she if she'd read this yeah. yeah absolutely she'd probably like looking at kevin bacon's bottom though <laughs> that would cheer her up yeah you did get to see his bottom in this from yeah i'd unless it's that a bit. unless it's a stunt bottom or a body double bottom but i don't, I don't oh, think God. he was at that stage in the career where he could demand a body double no i wouldn't have thought so no no but yeah so she um yeah the, the, she has these strange flashbacks where she sees things like jason splashing under the water and i thought well that's maybe a reflection on the scene with ned pretending to and i thought probably not yeah probably but, not um, yeah. and she also does a thing where she says killer mummy killer and all this which also reminded me of the scene with the snake where alice is saying kill it kill it and then again i thought probably not mm. But um, she, let's just say she's quite good. She fights like a man and uh, Alice fights back to her as if she's a man by punching her in the balls. Well, she throws a bit of string at her at one stage in a rather, in <laughs> rather, in a rather feeble attempt to ward off her <laughs> aggressive advances. Yeah, Ball of string, yeah. yes. Take this, bitch. <laughs> and another scene I thought where I really liked the way they'd lit it and everything was when Alice hides in the pantry. So they got like the door and they got the light yeah, shining through it. Yeah, I think that's a really effective and, scene. Yeah, and there's also uh, when 
Alice is sitting back and the light kind of shines across her eye. I, I think it's really well mm. done, that. It is. Although then Mrs. Voorhees like, finds her in the pantry and, and really clumsily just starts swinging the machete um, with no real aim. <laughs> she's completely aimless and she's quite kind of easily overwhelmed then by Alice with her frying pan. Yeah. <laughs> we should point out at this stage, of course, that Mrs. Voorhees, her reason for her revenge is that her son was Jason, who was a camper and the camp counsellors were busy shagging and... Uh, weren't paying any attention and he drowned in the lake. So she blames any camp counsellors in the area for the death of her son. Exactly. So anyway, we, this all leads up to the big fight scene. And we got uh, Mrs. Voorhees and Alice on, the, well, it's not really a beach because it's by a lake, but the sort of bit by the lake where the canoes are and stuff. And they have a big fight scene, which ends up with the climax of the film, a big machete decapitation, hmm. which is done in loving slow-mo, cocktail sticks and all it's all there for you <laughs> <Yep>. to see is <laughs> and then alice jumps into a canoe goes out into the lake and then as the daylight comes we get pretty music and she's sitting there as the cop car turns up and she sits up looking a bit nervous as if something's about to happen she's not sure and then all of a sudden the big jump scare jason jumps up and pulls her underwater so we got a great big carry inspired final shock mm -hmm which um, looks like it's meant to be a dream sequence because it looks as though she wakes up in hospital from that. So I'm assuming that's a dream sequence. Yeah, I sequence. think the assumption is it's meant, it was meant to be a nightmare, although the sequels kind of yeah. backtrack on that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they do, yeah. But the poor thing, she wakes up from a nasty nightmare and the first thing that happens is she gets an injection in a bum. <laughs> so poor thing. <laughs> and then it kind of ends mysteriously with her saying about, the, is the boy there? Is he, is, he, is he dead? And, you know, he's still there. And then it all fades to beautiful views of the lake and it closes. Mm. So that's the first film. Mm -hmm. Now, just to backtrack to Joseph Henson's Steve Christie theory. Oh, yeah. Joseph is convinced that Steve Christie and um, Mrs. Voorhees used to have a, a relationship that involved sexual intercourse. Now, his only <laughs> right. his only basis for this theory is that, oh, it's the way that Steve Christie, Christie says, oh, hi, what are you doing out here just before he dies? He says he's, he <laughs> says it in a way that insinuates that they were lovers once. And I'm like, OK, this is like this is even more far fetched than your Kevin Bacon handjob theory. That's not far fetched <laughs> at all. <laughs> it is. <laughs> if, the, if, it, if the Kevin Bacon handjob theory was that. Um, a power, a real and obvious Paramount would never have picked this film up for distribution <laughs> they would have insisted well, that scene would have been cut true. that's very true yeah. yeah okay I'll let you have okay. that one then in that case well, no, I, I, I'm going to go back to the history it continues now and tell them about this theory and see what they think yeah. <laughs> just watch the clip and see if I'm right <laughs> I, do, I can't look at that clip now in the same light you've taken my mm. innocence yeah. <laughs> Right, okay then. So, should we move on to the second yes. one now? Mm -hmm. Okay, well, the second one kind of takes over from, from this one with a small child splashing around in puddles and a big man's shoes that splash in the same puddles. Again, killer point of view and all the rest of it. Well, we've got Alice lying in bed and she's dreaming in convenient flashback sequences. Yes, for about 10 minutes. Of the last... Yeah. yeah, for the last film, which, interestingly, as you said, it includes a dream of her dream with a canoe yes. bit. Yes. And um, her mum phones, has a chat, and then she has possibly the fastest shower in history. She's about 10 seconds in the shower. Mm. 
And then things all get very tense where she gets a silent phone call, which could be Jason. You know, he may have learned how to use a phone or something. And we get the classic mm. cat scare. But not just any cat scare. This this poor cat is actually thrown through the window by, by some <laughs> offhand uh, grip on the film or something. Because <laughs> the, the, the position the cat comes flying through the window in is very unnatural. <laughs> it's cru- cruelty yeah, to animals yeah. again in part two. Mm. It is. At least they didn't chop the cat into three pieces, well, yeah. though. But yeah. Yeah, I know what you mean. It's not very nice. <laughs> it's a good jump scare. I mean, it always, it, it never fails to make me jump, even though I know it's coming. And then poor old Alice, after that, she opens her fridge to find there's a waxworks head in there. <laughs> and uh, she gets stabbed in her own head. And then we get the logo exploding this time. The first time it went into glass, yeah. but... I, I like that each time in these first films, each time we see the logo, something different happens yeah. to it. I love, that's what I love as well. I was going to say, I've taken notes in how much I love the opening credit sequences of the Friday the 13th movies. Mm. Mm. Anyway, so the film starts properly and then we've got Jeff and Sandra, who are the sort of shagging couple in this one. Yes, they're the Jack and Marcy of this one. Yeah, They're phoning Ted, who is the annoying joker in this one. And while they're phoning him, a van comes and tows theirs away. So, uh, yeah, right laugh. That's <laughs> sure hilarious. Love him. It's, it's really funny because <laughs> they have to run all the way through the through the town to try and catch this car. But uh, anyway, so um, and I think that they're, they're all driving along, the three of them as well. So it's very much like the first scene, except without the hand job. <laughs> he does tell a joke about about a, a toilet based joke, though. So it is. It, oh, he it does. Is quite yeah, that's true. Still. Yeah. Anyway, so Crazy Ralph pops up again, tells them people before wouldn't believe him, you're all doomed and everything. Crazy Ralph's posture on his bicycle is excellent. Oh, I don't remember he, that. What's his posture, his posture on the bicycle? On the bicycle he sits up so straight. You know the way norm- normally oh. you're hunched down when you're on a bike if you're a normal person? Yes. Crazy Ralph is sitting up super straight. He's obviously had an ergonomics <laughs> expert teach him how to ride his bicycle properly. <laughs> I just imagined it because it was like a bit a really old fashioned well, bike that, or something. That's, it's a that's bit... probably this, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say it sort of reminds me of um, what's it, Miss Gulch? It reminds me of that sort of from Wizard of Oz. Oh right, yes, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. So, so anyway, so we get introduced to some of the other characters. We've got Terry, who is a female who is wearing incredibly small hot pants that kind so of she, ride up. So she's up the Steve Christie of this. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> And we get Scott, who is the one that really fancies himself, that flirts with women by catapulting stones at their arse and stealing their clothes. Our mutual friend Amanda (laughs) Reyes is in love with Russell Todd, who plays um, um, that character who you just named. I can't remember now off the top of my head. Scott. Scott, yeah. Sorry, I only have a 60-second memory span. (laughs) Yeah. So Amanda Reyes, you can't say anything bad about Russell Todd playing Scott in this because she loves him. No, I, I can kind of see that, I must say. Yeah, no, no, I, I'm not disagreeing with that one. And uh, we also get our first shot of Ginny as she turns up in a little red beetle thing. Mm. And the, I noticed as well in this scene, there's the, all the councillors are there and there's a lot of very tight trousers in this. Well, it's 1981. Hmm, hmm. Paul, the chap in charge, he refers to Ginny, um, says, use a bit of that child psychology you're majoring in, which is obviously going to come up later in the plot. Mm. And then we have an interesting scene where they do um, a campfire and they're telling stories. Um, I think the story is called Simple Exposition. But anyway, he tells this story, (laughs) which ends up with a practical joke of the annoying jokey one jumping in and making them all scared. But it's almost identical to the one they do in The Burning. Exactly, which was filmed at the exact same time. They're They're both filmed in the late 
in the late summer of 1980. So, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting because I was going to ask you, because as far as I knew, they both came out the same time mm. and I didn't know one was before the other one. Yeah. Because if one were, if there was a year difference, I would expect one has copied the other one. No, they were filmed at exactly the same time. I think Friday the 13th mm. Part 2 came out maybe a couple of weeks or a couple of months before the burning. Yeah. But I think it's just pure coincidence. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, the counsellor starts socialising, which involves the Scott guy we mentioned flirting with Muffin the dog and some really bad dancing going on and Ginny goes to bed. Again, we get the sort of POV shots that we've mentioned before, although I did notice this time you do get some like male sounding breathing sometimes, Mm -hmm. which you didn't obviously in the first one. Crazy Ralph comes to a sticky end when he gets garroted by barbed wire and there's a, a little bit of humour here. We've got whether Muffin the dog stops at the killer's feet and then the film immediately cuts to a close-up of some sausages cooking on the barbecue. <laughs> I never made that connection. I I've was, never made that. I just thought that was really funny. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I moaned about the snake bit and then I'm laughing at that. Yes, but we know that nothing <laughs> but, happened to poor Muffin. You don't actually see Muffin getting chopped no. up into sausages. No, no. I don't think I'd like to you, eat dog sausages. No, I don't think so either. Although you do get some something sort of mangled and dog-like, but, I mean, it does look like it's a sort of a trampled wig. It could be anything. Yeah, but it, you know, it also but... has a bow attached to it, which is what Muffin wears. But Ah, I didn't notice the bow. Yes. But, yeah, yeah but, but it's still, it's still, I mean, we're getting ahead of ourselves here, but it's still not Muffin. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> anyway, I did notice that the cop mentions at one point in this that things have been quiet for five years, which is interesting because that suggests that uh, the the first film was five years before this one. It is, yeah. This is set five years after. Yeah. Although it's a, yeah, it's made it was made a year after, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. The first one interestingly says it's the present day, so this one is presumably in the future. So yep, but. Yep, yep. <laughs> oh, you're going to get yourself into all kinds of mischief now if you try and do a timeline for the Friday the 13th series. Yeah. So this cop that that turns up, he ends up spotting someone running through the woods, follows them and finds the remains of the first camp, which doesn't actually look anything like the first camp. I know it's derelict and everything, but it's a kind of a wooden tin structure with a no, flat I think roof. That's, that is actually meant to be Jay, where Jason has been living since he drowned in 1958. Oh, <laughs> it, right. it has no light. So that's Jason's house. That's actually the camp. Right, because that confused me at first, yeah. yeah. But what I was interested to see was that uh, Jason has a toilet. So he yes. does occasionally need to go for a poo, even though he's kind of supernatural <laughs> and stuff. <laughs> Yeah, he does well, now. Not when yeah. he's a zombie it later could, on, it could, but it he could does do with now. a bit of a clean, though. Oh God, yeah, <laughs> yeah. a bit of a you know some domestos, a citrus one, or maybe the pine yeah. one. But the, the the set's pretty good, though. Actually, I like the set. This sort mm. of falling down, decaying set was really somebody had a field day putting that together. Yeah. So the cop comes to a sticky end because he gets a hammer to the skull, which mm-hmm. I thought was quite is one of those you watch and you go, "Ow." Yes, because something similar happens in Halloween too, mm. which again was released in 1981. And then the all the loads and loads of councillors that are, are there are offered a last night out on the town, which conveniently halves the numbers. And nicely, it gets rid of Ted the Joker soon after, which is quite good. Oh, that's a bit harsh. Well, he is quite annoying. I was quite happy when he went. <laughs> he is. That's, yeah, because, and again, we're getting ahead of ourselves here, but Ted just, nothing really happens to Ted in the end. Mm. So um, He just disappears. Yeah. Mm. Which is a good, weird because he set up as a main character and none of the other Friday the 13th films do this where they set up a main character who just then sort of vanishes halfway through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So back at the camp, we've got 
Terry, who is doing some skinny dipping, um, which surprised me, actually, because it's a full frontal. Mm. And uh, I was quite surprised in these films because they hadn't been, there hasn't been that much nudity in them so far. No, but once you get on to part five, you'll know all about nudity. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, yeah, well, we've yet to cover part four, but yeah, I yeah. Know. yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, Vicky, who is one of the other women, is flirting with Mark, who's the guy in the wheelchair, in a very, very unsubtle way. <laughs> She's <laughs> not at all subtle. I think she says something to at one point, so you're in a wheelchair, but does everything else work or yeah. something like that? It's it's. And yeah. he's she, she's challenging him to play these little computer games that uh, belong to Ned, and um, she he says, "Well, what do you want to play for?" And she goes position <laughs> and she, she twirled her hair a bit or something yeah. yeah so i don't know why she doesn't say let's let's do it yeah exactly yeah. exactly so um terry who was doing the skinny dipping has her clothes stolen by scott he ends up standing on a, a rope trap thing and gets hung upside down and uh, i suppose well i say if amanda's ever wondered if he was well hung you know there you go ah, she's, the answer's boom, boom. there yeah <laughs> Interest, interestingly, and in a coincidence, oh, yeah. um, Russell Todd was in the film He Knows You're Alone the year before this, and he also gets hung upside down by the feet in that <laughs> film as well and killed. Right. Oh, I've not seen that one. Tom Hanks' debut film. Oh, right. <laughs> right. Terry goes off for help, and he gets killed with a throat cut um, with a machete. She finds him dead and screams, and it's another one of these um, killed off-screen yeah. kind of things. You, you presume mm. she's killed because she just kind of turns around and suddenly screams, but we don't actually see anything. Yeah, but we do see her body later yes, on in the we movie do. In, yes. in Jason's shack. Yeah. Yes. So the others are still having their night out with funky music and 80s dancing and Ted being irritating, and then Ginny comes up with her theories about what if there is a Jason and this was a bit confusing to me because she was saying that uh, imagine if Jason, his mother was all he had and she was everything to him and um, and all this. But then also um, she mentions the mother wanting revenge because of what happened to him and, and him being killed and stuff. So does that mean he was being looked after by his mother? Because if he was being looked after by his mother, she would have known he didn't die. See, this is this is why Tom Savini didn't want to come back to do Friday the Thirteenth Part Two because mm. he was offered to do this and he chose to do the Burning instead. Mm. He said he, he he thought just the script was ridiculous um, because it couldn't it couldn't find a way to possibly explain why Jason was still alive. Mm. Mm. I think they I think they just should have gone probably the supernatural route and said he he resurrected was resurrected from the dead out of you know profound grief or something yeah it would have made more sense you know it would have made no sense but more sense yeah and and you just wanted to say the word erected in there as well which is i did <laughs> i like rude words <laughs> so going back to vicky and mark and the wheelchair and everything like that um vicky goes off to get herself ready for him now this is <laughs> this is the scene <laughs> that just makes me laugh she finds the most horrible poo colored satin panties and kind of looks at them as if they're the sexiest thing ever, puts them on and sprays perfume down down inside the front. Now, now I don't know anything about female anatomy, but wouldn't that sting? I, I'm probably in the same boat <laughs> as you, so I don't know. But then, but then um, this poor actress, Lauren Marie, 
Taylor, I think is her name. Um, she then, she then has to sort of bend over and look around in her car while the camera leers at her her arse for about <laughs> twenty minutes. Well, it's actually it's about twenty seconds, but it feels you know. I know, but those pants are just fantastic. I mean, you'd imagine. That, oh, they're unbelievable. Yeah, oh, they're not exactly Ann Summers, are they? No, they're not. I mean, they're like the sort of erotic equivalent of a bucket of cold water. I would imagine. I mean, of all kind of yeah. brown, of all the colours. <laughs> Perhaps she's trying to hide something. I don't know. Yeah. Perhaps you know. She's frightened of revealing her skid marks or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> so anyway, while she's gone, Mark meets a, a nasty end. It's it just like some. It's like I'm on the hysteria continues Is it? with this puerile humor. <laughs> <laughs> oh God! So Mark dies with a machete to the face, rolls backwards down loads of steps, and uh, I thought that was quite shocking. It, it's obviously a dummy mm. and everything, but it's 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 quite good because it comes from nowhere and um you don't expect it to happen yeah i don't think that's a, a fine moment in the movie yeah yes. and it also it cuts at the point of sort of most horror cut straight across to jeff and sandra and their big climax so yep. that was quite quite interesting <laughs> bit of editing it's quite a good bit of editing but uh yeah and uh there see they come to an end when jason comes into the room and there's the big double death scene which was uh uh, borrowed, let's say, or an homage, uh, being kind to uh, Bay of Blood, where mm. they get the the spear through them both. So, is, is that what they mean when they talk about double penetration? Ah, <laughs> very oh, good. I don't know. I just wondered. Yes. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Although you don't get to see a lot of the double penetration in Friday the Thirteenth Part Two, you get to see more of it in Bay of Blood. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but then. Um, yeah. Apparently, uh, this was supposed to be one of the most graphic scenes uh, in the movie, but it was completely censored by yeah. um, the MPAA in the States. And ever since the footage is lost and it's in the ether out there, you know, in a landfill somewhere. Yeah. So we'll, we'll probably never see it. But I think that I heard the Friday the 13th 2 was one of the worst for being censored, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Particularly that scene. That, that scene is the sort of the, the, the tentpole scene. <laughs> People keep saying that word. What does that mean, the tentpole scene? To me, that means something completely different. What is it, what's it supposed to mean? <laughs> um, I think it's it's sort of the the primary scene. Might be a better word, maybe. Uh, okay. Oh, I see. Okay. See, yeah. to me, people say a tentpole scene. That's usually, you know, me watching Ryan Reynolds on the telly or something. That's what Ew. I call. But anyway. <laughs> anyway. Don't you mean Bob Hoskins? <laughs> Uh, no, no, no. Oh. All yours. Oh. <laughs> anyway, um, Vicky goes into a bedroom and Jason jumps up wearing a pillowcase or a, a sack thing on his head. And I actually think that's a really good look. I really like this more than the hockey mask. Mm. Uh, I don't know if I like it more than the hockey mask, but I do think it's a good look. Mm, mm. The, the way they film this scene is really good because the camera sort of focuses on his hand with a knife and he's got like a black thumbnail and things and it sort of focuses on that as he approaches her. Yeah, now, now she has she has about she has about twenty minutes to escape. And I keep I keep using the phrase twenty minutes uh. as a as an exaggeration of a span of time. But she has, she has so long to get away from Jason, and she just backs into the yes, door. Yes, yes. I mean, the thing with the I don't know what it's supposed to be a pillowcase or a sack or something like that. I, I think it looks more scary, but I think the problem may have been that it looks a lot like um, is it the town that dreaded sundown, where there's something very similar. Well, yeah, and there's a, lot, there were, a lot of people were saying it was very similar to the Elephant yes, Man as well. Yes. It was around the same time. But yeah, the, the Town of Dreaded Sundown uses the same yeah. Um, disguise. Yeah. yeah, yeah. 
So, so these murders have all happened, and Paul and Ginny come back. They go into um, a dark room, and there's the scene where there's something. There's someone in this room. There's someone in this room. This this scene, which I think is really good. Well, whenever I go into a dark room, I always think there's oh, is there somebody in this room. <laughs> when, when I'm developing photographs. <laughs> I don't want to know what kind of photos you develop. <laughs> but yeah, it's quite a tense scene. And, and I like that you can't actually quite see what's going on. You see the two men fight and then kind of fall behind the sofa or whatever it is. And then um, you, you don't know what's happening. And uh, I think that's quite a quite an effective little scene, that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and especially with him with the, the sack on his head. That looks really good in this because he kind of just jumps up suddenly with the sack on his head. Yeah, he's more nimble in this one than he is in in the later movies. Yeah, yeah, it's quite pacey. Yeah. yeah, well, this I mean, this is interesting. This this film because I always remember this one as being it's quite slow, the first half, and it's quite fast mm. in the second half. It seems as though yeah. all of a sudden it's boom, 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 and all the kills are happening and everything's happening after quite a long time. I think it's about fifty minutes before the kills actually start happening properly. I think the film as a whole is the shortest of mm. the Friday the 13th films as well. I think it's 80 minutes. Yeah. So, and the, whereas the rest of them sort of clock in around 90. Yes. So. Yes. Yeah, which I I mean, I, I like that the second half of this film, I think, is really pacey. And I don't dislike the first half. It's just sort of, it's it, the pace does change in it. That's all. Mm. So he chases Ginny and she hides under a bed in another cabin. And then we have this sort of very controversial scene with the rap. And a lot of people argue that it's the rat that's peed a lot of people argue that it's her that's peed because she's seen the rat or something and what's your theory i because i have my theory uh, well i think it's supposed to be the rat but but that rat really needed to go (laughs) if it did (laughs) that was a lot of pee that came out of that rat so what's your theory i i think it's Ginny because i think she's I think it's odd that she, she's so frightened of the rat she pees herself, whereas she's managed to keep it in mm. but whilst being chased by a psycho killer with a pickaxe. Mm. But um, I think it's mostly Ginny, and I still think it's ridiculous because surely her genes would soak up the bulk of it rather than it creating a pool. Oh, that's true. That's true. Yeah, mm. yeah. Not that, yeah, it's a weird thing to think about, I know, but... Yeah, yeah, it is. Although I could probably simplify If I was hiding under a bed from a killer and a big spider ran underneath it, I'd probably pee myself too, I imagine. Well, now that you put it that way, yeah. Probably, yeah. <laughs> um, we're building on towards the, the big ending, really. Well, we, before sorry, before that, the, of course, we have to say that Jason's all set to pounce on Ginny and he, he falls oh, off the chair right, and he breaks yes. it. Needs to lose a few pounds, I think. <laughs> So we build up towards this end, and this is this is one of the other bits that I'm not so um, convinced by. This is where she finds his hideout. She finds his mother's head, who he's kept as a kind of a shrine, and we see him running towards the, towards the hideout in the background, which I think looks good. You know, you see him in the distance. Yeah. It's really creepy, and um, she shoves on his mother's jumper and starts talking to him like his mother. Now. I'm no expert on psychology, but that didn't really seem very convincing to me that she would know instinctively to stick on a jumper and start pretending to be his mother. Yeah. Well, I would agree with you wholeheartedly on that, yeah. It just seems really um, convenient. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah, it's like... It's like- that would be the last, that would be your last resort. Your first thing would be, <laughs> how do I escape from here? Is there any weapons I can use against him? Not sort of, oh, put on this jumper and maybe, and pretend to be his mother. Maybe he'll be fooled. <laughs> it's way down on my list. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, mm. uh, okay, well, it kind of works for a bit anyway, but uh, it's it's inventive as a, a way of um, 
are dealing with him, but I'm not sure that it mm. is very convincing. Mm. So anyway, so there is this big fight scene. Paul reappears, her boyfriend or whatever he is, Paul reappears. I don't know where he's been for ages, but he comes back. They manage to tackle Jason, bring the machete down on his shoulder, and they pull off the bag, which we don't see what his face looks like. You said pull off. Pull off. Did I? <laughs> God, I'm, I know I'm slipping up. I didn't even notice I'd said that. God. God, I really must have a dirty mind. Yeah. Um, they <laughs> so they go back to the the camp. They I noticed as well. Um, every time somebody goes from Jason's hideout to the camp, they always have to walk past the same puddle with a stone in it. Yeah, the big puddle. yeah, there's yeah. a big puddle with a with a stone right in the middle of it. So they go back to Ginny's dorm. There's a noise at the door, and it turns out to be <gasps> it's Muffin the dog. Ah, oh. ah, oh, so sweet. Not mangled in the woods at all. So we get yeah. the pretty music again, like we did last time, and we didn't learn. And Ginny stands right in front of a great big black window, reaching out for the dog, and Jason bursts through the window. And drags her away. Yes, showing his face for the first time. So it's a big, big yeah. shock thing, like in the in the first film. So it's kind of setting up a you know, like a precedent. So we've got we have to have a big shock at the end. Yeah. And then next thing we see, she's taken away in the daylight by an ambulance and the last thing we see is Mrs. Forty's head on this shrine and the camera zooms <laughs> in and just at the point where you think she's about to blink, it freezes. Well, you do know what, how, what, how that, that scene was supposed to play I out. I did hear that it was supposed, something was supposed to happen with the head, wasn't it? Yes. Okay, you'll notice that the head looks completely different to the one that Ginny, uh, that Alice found in oh, the God, fridge completely. at the start of the movie. This one looks yeah. at least realistic, the yeah. Yeah, well, the reason for that is that it is actually a human being with her head stuck through the table uh, with makeup on. Her name is Connie Hogan, and she was supposed to open her eyes and smile as the camera panned in. Oh. And that, that was what was filmed, because if you notice, the the, the shot freezes, yeah, as you said. It suddenly so stops. You can see the can yeah, big, it stops just before the point where she was going to open her eyes and smile, because uh, they just thought it looked a bit too goofy. I would have liked that ending, I have to say. Well, I mean, compare, considering some of the things that have happened in the film, it's yeah, I not know. that goofy. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah, so what, what did you make of um, the second one? Well, the, yeah, the second one is regarded, certainly amongst the Hysteria Continues and our listeners, as probably the best of the series. Okay. I know that you disagree on this theory. Um, it wasn't always my favourite. Uh, I found it quite, as you said earlier, I found it quite slow when I saw it first. And I found it the, the lack of um, juicy gore, probably, that I got from the first one mm. and from part four. I, I thought that was, the, the lack of that was sort of, uh, you know, was um, really apparent to me, mm. uh, but it's one I've grown to love over the years. I love the atmosphere, and you've said you said a few times during that you said, "Oh, that was really eerie." Mm. You know the scene where you can see Jason running in the distance, and there's that scene where he runs across the road, and the when the policeman is um, driving home. Uh, I thought that was kind of a spooky scene as well. I think there's it, it's a better directed film probably than the first one. Mm. Uh, it does suffer from having so many censorship problems, possibly. Um, because I think it had the gore effects been left in, I think they would have been even more spectacular than what Tom Savini achieved in the first one. Mm. But, uh, even, but even with the gore removed, I think it's it's a fine slasher movie. Uh, as you said, the first half it can be perceived as quite slow. I, I don't see it that way anymore. I think I did back in the 80s. But uh, yeah, I, I do. I love the movie now. And as I said, I think 
the, the, the vibe I get from most slasher fans is that it's their favourite. Hmm. Hmm. No, I can see that. I mean, it's not my favourite of the series, but it's it's... You know, it's up there. It's one I do like, despite mm. when me saying it's kind of slower first half than a second half. Um, I've always liked it more than the the first film. You know, really? so yeah. it's um, you know, it's it could well be a, a second favorite for me. Well, I hope you enjoyed that so far. You can hear the second half of our discussion next week when we'll be talking about part three in three D and part four, the final chapter. Special thanks to Eric for joining me. Thanks to Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com for the music. The show must be go. Thanks to strangeanddeadly.com for giving this podcast a home. And lastly, and of course, most importantly, thank you for listening and spending another hour in my company. Don't forget you can get in touch on Twitter at IamGoreBlimey. You can email me on TrilogyPodcast at gmail.com. You can like the Facebook page and you can join the Facebook group, Trilogy of Terror Podcast Official. And if you enjoy the podcast and have a few minutes, you could make my day by leaving a short review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts as it's called now. Anyway, till next time, bye! Don't forget to visit and like the Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter at IamGoreBlimey or email us at TrilogyPodcast at gmail.com. crap fests to downright unwatchable and only two men are willing to watch them all so climb in and take your seat this is short bus cinema let's do it hey everyone this is johnny krug from kruger nation and this is rick morgan from the helming power hour we have decided to team up and take you where no one has gone before. We're on a quest to find the world's worst movie, and we're doing it on the bus. Driving through cult classics in every genre to find holy grail of bad movies. So if you're looking for something different and more fun than you can stand, then climb on in. Short Bus Cinema is a proud member of Legion Podcasts. That's right, yo! Short Bus Cinema. We'd love to watch the movies you hate. Hello, this is the Doom Show. Keep on keeping on and keep on trucking, America. We don't listen to our feedback because we don't get any. (laughs) The truth hurts. I just alienated the two people that give us constant feedback. Sorry, guys. That's gotta go. (laughs) That's gotta go in there. So on the show, uh, we talk about giallo movies and slasher movies and cult movies. Sometimes we even talk about Cameron Mitchell and his movies. I am Richard. Who are you? 
I am Brad, the guy that's not Richard, or Jeffrey, or Simon. That's right, we have four people, and we always talk at once, except to each other. Jeffrey lives up north, Simon lives across the world, Richard lives in Penis, Alabama. Hello, This is the Doom Show is a proud member of the Legion Podcast Network. Check out the other shows on legionpodcast.com. You can check out more Hello, This is the Doom Show at hellodoomshow.podomatic.com or at doommoviethon.com. Check for our Amazon exclusive Hello, This is the Doom Show cookbook. Do you like hot dogs? (laughs) We got them. Do you like mac and cheese? We got it. Do you like cheddar? We have it. Actually, we don't. No, no cheddar. Just Colby. Colby Jack. Hello, this is the Doom Show. We never gave up on you because you never gave up on us. Wow.